episode 14. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to our podcast, That Show Second Millennium. And I'm here again with my friend, uh, uh, Dr. Paul Giesting. I'm Bill Schmidt. And we're having uh, a, a great series of conversations uh, combining a whole lot of uh, things, uh, faith and reason related, physics and metaphysics related. And in the, uh, at the moment, we're in the middle of a few episodes of conversation about a, a very important conference that uh, took place recently in this whole area. It was uh, on the um, it was uh, the meeting of the Society of Catholic Scientists, and uh, they're just a, a quite august group on the cutting edge, where we're trying to uh, lend our uh, uh, hand in uh, adding to the discussion. Uh, Paul. I, uh, I, uh, we've already talked uh, a lot about the general background of both the society and the meeting, which you attended uh, not too long ago, and uh, it's really been interesting about what these folks are discussing. I think uh, we can continue talking now about uh, individual uh, speakers. Uh, each brought a very unique uh, topic and set of insights. Uh, why don't we talk, please, about um, Edward Fazer? who was one of the uh, uh, earlier speakers. Uh, could you say something first to introducing him and then um, uh, go on with uh, some, some uh, of his main points? Yeah, Edward Fazer gave the keynote, uh, the first actual sort of content talk on, uh, on Saturday morning. So he had, he had one of the hour talks. And the conference <clears throat> as a whole being about uh, mind and, you know, basically whether materialism can explain the human mind, uh, physicalism being the term they use in the title. So his talk was called The Immateriality of the Mind. Now he's a philosopher, he's a philosophy professor, if memory serves, at Pasadena City College out in California, which is not exactly an institution that uh, makes your ears perk up necessarily in terms of name recognition. But, mm -hmm. uh, but his name is certainly one that, you know, I, I, I recognized him going into the conference. I've not read one of his books, but I know he's a, he's a fairly prominent uh, contemporary Catholic philosopher. And that's really all I knew going into the talk. Fair enough. And he talked about uh, the immateriality of the mind? That yeah, was that, was, that was the title of his talk, and he was kind enough to actually give us a printed outline. Of his talk, Very good. Uh, so I have I have uh, the notes that I took as sort of scribbles on that uh, on that piece of paper that he passed out to all of us. Great. Yeah. So uh, what what does all that mean for uh, the the questions we're asking the uh, the uh, how how to how to address uh, modern world issues with uh, the knowledge that we've. Uh, accumulated uh, in the second and now third millennia. So, so if you take, um, there's this weird tension in uh, modern thought, and this is actually something that uh, Steven Pinker, who's definitely an atheist and definitely uh, harshly and somewhat considerably completely ignorantly about religion, um, uh, believes himself to be a critic of religion. He's, he's a critic of some random straw man is what it actually is. But, All right. Uh, he, he does, however, um, accuse, you know, his sort of fellow progressives of being really inconsistent about 
their beliefs. So that that's the whole his book, the, the Blank Slate, which is that there is this tension in sort of modern, so to speak, liberalism or leftism or progressivism, that on on the one hand you have the people who are sort of intellectually materialist, and of course you know Marxism explicitly uh, commits itself to materialism, um, and that so that whole strain of thought you know brings that brings that in, and then of course there's the scientific materialism of well we can't study it if we can't uh, if we can't make predictions about it and do experiments with it. Um, and if it does so, if it doesn't obey the laws of physics in such a way that we can pin it down and force it to to do what we want and make predictions and verify them, it must not be real. Essentially, mm-hmm. sort of a right. confusion between your ontology and your epistemology um, is one way of looking at that. So there's that mm-hmm. strain of modern thought, which is definitely the side that uh, Pinker is on, but there but that coexists with this weird sort of. Um, idea that you can hammer human beings into absolutely any shape that you want, which really doesn't mm. make any sense if we are bundles of just, you know, if we're just, quote, wet computers that have somehow self-assembled ourselves and oh are my. just, you know, processing inputs um, and are, you know, we, we grow via the rules of genetics and then we, you know, further develop just by an interaction between these laws of genetics and the you know the current the interactions we have with our environment uh, that is that is not consistent with this idea that we can basically turn ourselves into anything that we want, which of course is a huge part of you know the modern progressivist sort of ethos. Um, so right. there's this huge and and so you know so you'll hear people like Bishop Barron um, with at least you know some good reason for saying this you know accuse modern thought of having a a big Gnostic strain in it with the superiority of the of the spirit over the body, um, you know that I can I can like I said ba- basically make myself into anything that I want. Yeah, and yeah. that's um, that. So that's so there's that big tension there. So so if you take that materialist side of things and you try to understand the mind, you know, so which is really sort of the more intellectually serious side. Um, it's mm-hmm. the side where we're more at least worried about, you know, philosophically whether we're actually making logic errors and that sort of thing, as opposed to sort of appealing to an emotional sense of, well, I'm free to do whatever, you know, whatever I want and whatever I want, you know, not really necessarily digging far into why you want what you want. So mm-hmm. there, if you have a materialist view of it, therefore, to sort of to, to bracket that off, because this is really what Phaser is talking about. If you have that view. You have this this idea that's become very pervasive, but like I said, you know, we're basically some sort of wet computer that's just processing inputs. And I would like to pause at the outset and comment on how even that, I think, I don't think people really think through. Computers are things that we've made. (laughs) Computers are things we have made, and they are just you know, really further extensions of the craft of writing, of the craft of, you know, using other items like abacuses and so forth to keep track of figures and rules and, you know, ledgers. I mean, it's, they're really just extensions of that. And they're amazing because, because they're quantitatively such huge extensions of that that you can, I can set up a mechanism and have it follow rules that I've programmed into it and I myself may not even be aware of all the things that it will do 
because I haven't thought through all the logical consequences because I'm finite, but nevertheless right. we can put these rules into it. And I don't think people who adopt this, I, I'm, not, I'm not at all sure that people who you know, adopt this idea that the mind is just a computer um, have really thought through the consequences of computers are just our minds, so what are you talking about? Um, yeah. That, that that somehow explains. So Facer starts out um, with this question of, all right, if we're, if we're someone, you know, if, if we're, we're critiquing materialism, you know, let's just take that, you know, every, every idea in science and philosophy deserves to be critiqued, you know, so this is an idea that, you know, deserves critique. Does it actually explain everything that it purports to explain? So he, he lays out three aspects of the mind that are difficult, that are widely understood to be difficult for uh, materialism to explain. So one of them is the fact that we're rational. One of them mm -hmm. is the fact that we have consciousness, which we have, we have some sort of experience called qualia, where, you know, the example, you know, the way I always like to explain it, you know, if I see something red, it's very interesting <laughs> for you to tell me that the reason I have this experience of redness is due to the fact that my retina has, you know, encountered photons of a given wavelength range and that my cone, is, cone cells have responded this way and so on up the line. That's very interesting, but that's not my experience of redness. I mean, that's, that's obviously different. You're telling me how my experience of redness, you know, what physical stimuli prompted it, but you're not explaining it. Um, and yeah. that's, that's obviously a different thing, and a lot of materialists and seem to respond to that by, you know, I mean, you know, speaking in reductionist language and sort of sweeping it under the rug, they like to talk about illusions and that, you know, the illusion of consciousness, I've heard, you know, Pinker, for example, use that phrase, um, which is just a way of wriggling out of the question, really, it seems, um, as to me and, and not <laughs> a not small number of other people. And then there's the question of intentionality, which at first I thought, oh, he's talking about will, but he's talking more about directedness of thought is what I wrote down in my notes, you know, sort of scratching my head trying to digest what he was saying. That we think about things and that, yeah, I mean, and, and that will obviously tie to the operation of the will and what we choose to do in response to the things that we see and think about. Right. Um, but it's not, that was not how he really explained it. It was not really primarily about will as in, you know, freedom of choice and what to do in response to your, uh, environment it was it was the awareness that I am thinking about something and that I have you know that, that my thoughts have some sort of intention um, which in I other words, that, do that I? the thought uh, when you consume a thought as it were when you receive a, a thought uh, it doesn't just stay put in uh, a brain cell um, uh, idly and uh, in isolation uh, mm -hmm. like it would in a computer but there's an intentionality or a potential there that uh, that thought uh, can interact and and uh, and lead to actions of the will and 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 uh, further computations in your own mind, further further uh, further thought patterns, etc. Right? Is that am I am I grasping I a think little bit of what that is? I'm not, I'm not satisfied with my own understanding of what he was talking about, let alone, you know, being able to interpret anyone else's at this point. I, but, so let me just say, I think, yes, I think those things are all involved, and I would need to do further <laughs> a little it's, bit I, I love that. to, to clarify what the heck he's even, you know, what, what exactly he meant by that statement, or by his, you know, by his statements about intentionality. 
So, but it's interesting, yeah. So, so then he goes on to comment that contemporary philosophy tends to take consciousness and intentionality to be the more difficult things for materialism to explain. You know, so he, so he gives there, there's a whole series of different flavors of the same basic argument that, you know, in in my own words, I would say we know that there's a difference between, well, you know, let me let me bring up a you know a podcast I was listening to. Um, there's a very famous podcast called Radio Lab, and they had a uh, episode and possibly an episode. Well, no, there was an episode that they had updated. So they're talking about the whole Turing problem when we can get computers to the point that their interactions with humans will fool other humans into thinking that they're interacting with a human. Mm. I've human too many times. Have you heard of this, the, the Turing test, I believe it's called? Mm. And once you get, you know, 30%, a third of people to the point where in their ordinary interactions with, so, so of course we have things like chatbots now, so that they will simply respond to text with a response. And, you know, so people have been working on these for decades, especially since the advent of the internet made it possible for, you know, an interaction like this to go on between human beings. And so the next question is, well, can I automate it so that if, for example, I'm dealing with customer support, I don't actually have to have this many customer support people. And, and further, you know, you can make the argument that it's not really, you know, tremendously dignified for a human being to just answer the same thing over and over and over again. Um, right. and, and, right. and a chat bot could be more effective. I mean, there are lots of good reasons to have these things. There's sort yeah. of an ew factor yeah. at first, potentially, when you think about them. But really, I mean, you know, it's a chat bot could be a lot more effective way of feeding you the information. Yeah, the information. Having huge, you know, text files on the Internet and, and depending on your reader to, you know, to use the find function. Um, even if you're even if you're savvy about that thing, a lot of times you could program something into into one of these chat bots, some some sort of automated system that will make that a lot easier and you know waste a lot less people's time. Um, right. But that can fool you. I mean, of course, there are rules of interaction, and you're going to naturally program some amount of politeness and all these other sort of quasi-human details into your chat bot. And people, mm-hmm. you know, have, oh, oh. computers, and of course, this not too far from this, the, the people start to go down the rabbit hole of, oh, computers are going to take over the world and they're going to start having, like, as if as if it's going to naturally follow that these things are going to have intentionality of their own um, in either the thought or the uh, or the free choice sense, um, which ah. is an, another, another argument for another time. But really, if you sit and think about it, you have no, you know, if, if you know what's going on, if you've seen behind the curtain, you have no expectation that this, you know, Pentium 5 back here um, with you know a gigabyte of RAM is actually experiencing anything like what I experience. If I were telling someone, "Have you tried rebooting the system?" <laughs> um, whatever whatever piece of sage advice uh, it might be offering to your your said, um, we we don't you know we we know that. So there's there's you know often the philosophical argument is like if you knew there was a zombie, if you knew there was an android or whatever, you know, a robot simply, you know, doing whatever its creator, and that's a key thing that's usually, you know, swept into the background, whatever its creator's best approximation of human interaction with you is, you don't have any actual belief that it's experiencing consciousness, that it's experiencing qualia of any kind, nor do you really expect it to be having any sort of intentionality. And there's, so that's, you know, so that's one line of evidence. But the crux of, of Phaser's talk was to talk about um, 
an argument that had a lot more traction in the ancient and medieval world, which is that actually of these three branches, rationality, which of course Spazer actually mentioned first, um, mm-hmm. is is the the key thing that says, oh, human beings can't just be, you know, bags. I mean, that's 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 the whole you know Aristotelian statement. Hum, the definition of human being is an animal with a rational soul, right? Mm. So that you know that that is a, and that is can't be material according to ancient and medieval philosophers. That simply you know that that simply seems like nonsense to them. Right. And they you know they have more or less uh, elaborated arguments to that effect. So to try to modernize. Um, and, you know, to what degree, he didn't go into details as to what degree this is rooted in ancient medieval philosophy, which would be a fascinating talk in itself. But so he gives an argument that um, he cites from someone named uh, James Ross, although he also drops several other names of people who are, you know, who are important in the philosophy of thought. So there's a, his basic argument, you know, in, in the classic syllogism format goes like this, that Formal thought processes can have an exact or unambiguous conceptual content. Okay, so that's premise one. That's the uh, that's the major premise. So the minor premise: nothing material can have an exact or unambiguous conceptual content. Okay, therefore it would have to follow logically the formal thought processes can't be simply material. So if you're thinking about something, and you know, you know you have that. And see, this is the thing, is that, so this is about rationality, and yeah. yet, to me, he was also talking about, he had to be talking about intentionality. In a sense, he had to be talking about consciousness. I'm not sure you can really delink these three things particularly cleanly mm. and speak of them separately. That, was, that would be my response to what he was talking about. But, but to go through this argument, Okay, so he'll start by trying to defend the second premise, which, you know, is actually probably easier. Um, We know that if you see a chain of symbols, so let's say you're looking at something in Crete, you know, this this stone uh, monument that's been protected for the last 3,000 years or however old it would have to be, to have linear A scripted onto it, you know, this particular, if if memory serves, uh, pre-Greek... there, there's a linear B that's close enough to, you know, other languages we can actually interpret that it has been deciphered. But if you're looking at linear A, eh, it's, it's just a chain of symbols. We don't know what they could mean. And therefore, you know, well, I mean, that's the thing. We don't know what they could mean. There's certainly not an unambiguous conceptual content to this chain of symbols. But the problem is, is that um, you can assign to a chain of symbols different meanings. You could take each of these symbols to be a word and make it into a, you know, a form of hieroglyphics or Chinese characters, something, something analogous to those things. You could take mm-hmm. them as, you could take it as a syllabary. You could use these mm-hmm. symbols and you could fit that back to whatever, you know, however big your sample of linear A is. Um, and it, it might seem more or less tortured but you can fit back an alternative um, interpretation to this. You know, there's always some ambiguity. There's, there's some, the logical structure of it will rule out, you know, a lot of possible reinterpretations, but there will always be some sort of reinterpretation that you can make. Does that make any sense? Yeah. yeah. So the, exa- the example he actually gave in the talk, 
he, he reduced it down to uh, mathematics. So if you have the plus sign, right, you know, the, the cross that's, that we used to symbolize adding two numbers. Right. You know, if you, you know, you're in elementary school and you've never added numbers that get bigger than 100, right? You know, yeah. So you've never added, you never added numbers that are bigger than 50 to each other. Mm -hmm. And somebody comes along, and so, so you're working on this problem for the first time, like, okay, my teacher has assigned me as a bonus problem to add 51 and 67. Ooh, what am I going to add up? You know, what is it going to add up to? And right. you're thinking about the conceptual problem. Someone could come along and tell you, you know, perfectly freely, oh, this, this plus thing that you, you know, that you've uh, been using. Well, anytime, you know, the conditions are such that, you know, both the numbers that you're adding are greater than 50, uh, then the answer is just 10. Uh -huh. I mean, it's, it's completely arbitrary, but on the other, you know, for the for the purposes of example, it nevertheless, like, you wouldn't have any other evidence, you know, you couldn't be sure based on everything that you know up to this point. And what humans know is finite. So we can always yeah. interpret our symbols in a different way. We could always come back and put a different interpretation on our symbols if, if we wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't already in our minds, and this will go back to the first premise, actually know what we were talking about, right? Right. So there is some way, somehow we actually know what we're talking about. We actually know what we mean by the addition. And, and in fact, we know what we mean to a level of precision that allows us to transcend boundaries that we happen to have in our thinking. We're limited by the amount of time that we can spend on it. We're limited by the insights that happen upon us, but we can we can know exactly what we're thinking about. And it's, right. And he and he spent some time, you know, detailing why you know there there are people, um, some fairly famous philosophers from the 20th century whose names I won't, uh, you know, go through. I mean, the 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 listener, the interested listener, can easily find them on their own. Um, that would talk about. You know, well, you know, everything, all of our communication is really ambiguous. So linguists and, and people who are interested in sort of um, thinking. But that's, you know, that's one of those things where we take criticism too far, right? We, we get to the yeah. point where we're so confident that our criticism can destroy anything that we put in front of it that we don't believe in anything. That's sort of yeah. a, modern, a modern weakness. That is. Um, depending on who you talk to, it goes all the way back to at least you know, William of Ockham in the 14th century. Um, right. You know, some people trace it back to Descartes. Some people trace it back to Ockham. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a potential that human beings have, and we are using it. So the idea that we, we should be careful, of course, about the fact that, you know, our communications can and do have this intrinsic, our communications have this intrinsic um, ambiguity precisely because we only communicate with each other through physical signs of some kind, like Aquinas and Aristotle and, you know, any number of other Aristotelians and Thomas have always said, we communicate by means of, you know, we, we, everything we have in the intellect, we receive through the senses, right? Okay. Or, or we have constructed it off of that. So yeah. that is, I mean, so that's, so that involves that ambiguity. So, of course, our ability to communicate with each other is ambiguous, but that doesn't mean that I don't know what I'm thinking about. That doesn't mean that you don't know what you're thinking about. You right. may not, 
you may be thinking in a way that's ambiguous and that you need to clarify, but that you, you know that if you put the work in, you will get to the point where you're clear about what you're thinking about, as clear as you need uh -huh. to be. Right. And that simply, and that's going to be, um, you know, and that, that, that's the crux of the argument, right? If you, if you accept the, both of those premises, then, the, then it follows that obviously whatever's going on in my mind is not simply, you know, chemical signals and neurons because chemical signals and neurons could be reinterpreted. However, you know, in, in, in whatever, in a, in a wide variety of ways that would be logically, you know, internally consistent. There, there could not right. possibly be just one way of interpreting them. Right. So, that, so that's, and when I was listening to the argument and thinking of it, I guess, as, you know, as trying to keep rationality completely separate from consciousness and intentionality, the argument felt to me to be really kind of roundabout. It's like, it's yeah, like yeah. watching a mathematical proof unfold. Um, here's a bizarre example. So there's a formula out there called Heron's formula that tells you, you know, so you normally find the area of a triangle by finding out how tall the triangle is. Right. You have, you have to find its altitude and you multiply that by its base and you divide it by two because the triangle has half the area of a rectangle with the same height. Um, but there is a formula that allows you just to measure the sides of the triangle and I've watched the proof for that formula unfold, it is pretty circuitous. It's kind of amazing <laughs> that people, I mean, and this, and this proof dates to, I don't know, the first century AD or something like that, maybe the first century BC. We're not, I don't think uh, we're really sure. Um, it's really circuitous. <laughs> yeah. It really has to go, kind of walk, you know, tiptoe all the way around its subject before finally it pounces, right? Right. And this argument seemed a little like this to me while I was sitting here, uh, sitting there in the at the Catholic University, uh, listening to him lay it out. And I think right, right. Th there's a and there's a feeling whenever I have a I listen to an argument like that or read an argument like that that there's got to be a sort of straight through way. And and I think the straight through probably would have to do with the fact that things are. You know, that the intentionality and consciousness get tied up in this whole question of whether my formal thought process has an, has an unambiguous conceptual content. Yes, clearly it does, and that content, I mean, that content is in my consciousness, right? That content is what my intention is focused on, right? Right. So, so in a way, it's almost, I almost think that the the answer leads you pretty quickly to, you know, rationality being tied up, and, and whichever one you would put first, you know, you want to think about that a lot more. Is rationality primary over intentionality? Ah, well, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's the sort of thing that philosophers like to talk about. And, and some of us, we go to visit their world for a while, and then we go back to what we were doing. Um, hopefully the wiser. <laughs> right. So, so yeah. So that was, and, and there was there was more that he talked about. Um, at the at the end, um, more more in the the mandatory philosophical question of you know, I have to respond to whatever objection, however far out in left field it may have come from, um, right. which is you know which is something that's been going on for quite a while, certainly the whole twentieth century at least. 
But uh, but that was really the crux of his argument. So I probably will go ahead and stop there. Well, it's, it's fascinating, and I, I love the idea that uh, these uh, topics are uh, are being discussed in such depth, and also uh, in a broader context of a multidisciplinary audience and uh, you know implications for uh, broader uh, problem solving and. And, and issues that we'd want to address. So uh, even if some of these points seem to be uh, out in left field or out in right field or, or whatever, at least the, uh, the ball game is being played. I like that. I like that. Uh, well, thank you for that summary of, of that uh, uh, talk. That's the end of our discussion about Ed Fazer's lecture. Tune in next week where we'll discuss Stephen Barr.